the need for resolution at the end of things, and I felt resolution at the end of that song with that, uh, with that swat there. This is the final message we're about to enter into from a series on the final words of Jesus. And our goal really has been for these final words that Jesus shared with us on the cross to prepare us for this very week, Holy Week. And I hope and pray that, that it, it has cumulatively led you to a point of being fully prepared for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, and Easter. Uh, I, I've been so grateful. Uh, many of you have been struck by uh, just how intentional Jesus was with these words. Some of you have come to me and said, I didn't realize how intentional and, and, and calculating and, and conscious he was as far as what he was saying. None of the words that Jesus shared on the cross were haphazard or random. They were very purposeful as the divine rabbi himself continued to teach us on the cross. He wanted these words to stick in our minds and even more so in our lives. And as Stuart comes now to uh, give the scripture reading, it happens that we are dealing with two of his final statements, his very two final statements here uh, this morning And it works out very well to do this the way we did last week, uh, to have a sermon in three parts, and we will do that this morning, and we will enter into this time, first of all, with the Scripture reading. Good morning. The first Scripture this morning is from John 19, verse 30. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The second verse this morning is from Luke 23, verse 46. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. These last two statements that Stuart just read paint a powerful picture for you and me. And you might think that we're jumping ahead because really at Palm Sunday we celebrate the triumphant entry of Jesus. But really the triumphal entry is a foreshadowing of what we're talking about this morning. If you look at this story of the triumphant entry of Jesus, you see two real themes there. One is of victory, triumph. And the other you see is submission to God as symbolized by Jesus riding in on a lowly donkey in full humility and obedience to God. And so really, Palm Sunday was a foreshadowing of what we're talking about this morning. And I think this act of Jesus riding in on the donkey on the triumphant entry paints two important pictures for you and for me that are also reflected in these two final words of Jesus. One is a picture of victory. And the other is a picture of submission. First, with these final words, you and I are given a victory to celebrate. Jesus said, it is finished. And on some level, we do want resolution. I love the ending of that song that we heard the choir sing because there was definitive resolution. It reminds me of the story of a musician. He was very talented, but he was very lazy in the morning and didn't want to get up out of bed. And so... His wife, who could play piano quite well, would go downstairs, and in order to get him out of bed, 
would play the final four chords of this song that he loved so much, but she wouldn't play the final chord. So she would play three chords, and it would just be lingering there. And she would wait. Still wouldn't come down. So she would do it again, and he's just up there getting knots in his stomach. And finally, he would come dashing down and play that final chord, and then things were okay. He wanted resolution. He needed consummation to that song. Well, these are the consummating words of Jesus on the cross, and they do bring resolution. Now, it's interesting. Matthew and Mark tell us merely that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. They don't indicate what he said. But Luke tells us one of the sentences that Jesus uttered, and John, who was there at the foot of the cross, mentions the other. And we'll deal with that one first. And I think that this is the statement that Jesus cried out the loudest. The loudest. And it was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. Jesus did not say, I am finished. (laughs) He said, it is finished. It's really the consummation of his whole mission of redemption. And he cried it out in one word. Now, we, we will have something like, it is finished. Usually that's what it says in our English translations. What Jesus cried was one word. It was one word in his native tongue of Aramaic. It was one word in the New Testament Greek. Tatelestai, or tetelestai. You can pronounce it one of two ways. Tetelestai. It's in the perfect passive of a verb. And it speaks to a purpose that has been fulfilled or a mission that's been accomplished, a goal that has been reached, a task or a challenge that has been taken care of. Literally, it means it is finished, it stands finished, and it will remain finished. And it was, it's this wonderful word if you do a word study on it. It has this rich multiplicity of meanings. It's kind of like taking a large, beautiful diamond and turning it as you hold it into the light. And it shines different aspects of its colors and its beauty. And that's what this word is like. You just turn it in different directions and realize just how deep the meaning is and why Jesus used that very word. And it's especially helpful to look at it in historical context and see how it was used in Jesus' day. Who used this word in Jesus' day, and how did they use it? Well, first of all, let's look at servants. Servants used this word, tetelestai, when they were telling their master, I have accomplished this task that you have given me to do. I have finished the work that you have asked me to do. I thought about that the other day, and I thought, I hope when I meet him face to face that I can say as your servant, tetelestai. You know, I, I have finished that work that you have wanted me to accomplish. So servants would say that word in one pronouncement or another in order to say, I have finished the work that you have given me to do, my master. Think about that. Jesus was fulfilling his work as a servant, not just of his father, but of us. But it wasn't just servants who used this word, tetelestai. Priests used it. Pagan Greek priests would use it At the time of sacrifice, they would look at an animal that had to be without blemish before they would offer it up in sacrifice to a god or a goddess. And they would look it over and over and make sure there were no blemishes, no faults to it. And if it was okay, they would announce, te telestai, it is perfect. Same word in a different sense in Aramaic among priests, Jewish priests in Jesus' day, When they were offering a sacrifice, they wanted to make sure that whatever animal it was 
was pure and perfect and had no blemish on it, and they would announce the same thing. Te telestai. It is without blemish. It is perfect. It was their equivalent word in the Aramaic. In other words, it's conveying uh, faultlessness, innocence, perfection. And think about it at that sense. Jesus himself was the great high priest, as it says in the book of Hebrews, but he was also the great high priest who was as well, what? The great sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice, who was perfect and innocent and without blemish and faultless. And he did that for you and me for the redemption of our sins. So servants would use this word. Priests would use this word. And then artists used this word, interestingly enough, when they would complete some artistic piece. It was kind of like we might say, voila, or something. I have completed the masterpiece. Uh, Will Willimon, the bishop of North Alabama, uh, recently retired, going back to Duke University, uh, compared this word to, to, he liked to imagine Michelangelo just painting the final brushstroke of his incredible painting in the Sistine Chapel. And he must have cried out something like this word. Tetelestai. I am finished. I have completed this masterpiece. And that's really what Jesus did as the divine artist. He completed this masterpiece. Someone has compared it in this way when they use this word. When you study the Old Testament, you have these incredible stories, but they don't really all make sense when they're all put together. It's like being in an art gallery with the lights turned off. And you have these pictures, but they don't all really make sense, and you can't see what they're all about until someone turns on the lights. And that is what Jesus did when he came along and fulfilled his own mission and finished it, completed it. He turned on the lights. And this story that was so intriguing and mysterious and holy came to life because of what he offered to us on the cross. I can't help but think even further when he was walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend. And it says he opened the scriptures to them. Do you remember that? And then he revealed himself to them. In other words, at that point, he turned on the lights. (laughs) Tetelestai, the lights came on. So servants used it to say, I've completed my master's task. And priests used it to say, this is a sacrifice without blemish, which is perfect. And artists used it to say this is a masterpiece. It is the completion of a masterpiece. And finally, get this, merchants used it frequently. Merchants, businessmen, businesswomen, tetelestai. It literally meant the debt has been fully paid. Now think about that. The debt has been fully paid. If someone were to buy something on credit and they were now in debt to a merchant, They would need to pay off that debt. And once they finally paid off that debt, and isn't it nice to get a debt paid off, as you know, that merchant would give you a receipt that actually had the word tetelestai on it. And it meant it is finished. Your debt has been paid. Now, you see where I'm going with this, don't you? But isn't this amazing? Unbelieving sinners are in debt to Jesus Christ They're in debt really because of their sin, and they can't pay the bill themselves. And so they are in debt with Jesus because of what he did for them on the cross, what he finished, what he completed, what he accomplished, achieved on the cross. He paid the debt in full for you and for me. He canceled that debt forever, even though it was ourselves who should have been paying it. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus, the servant, said, 
tetelestai, I have completed my master's task. Jesus, the priest, said, yes, I am the great high priest, but I was also the priest who was also a sacrifice, a once-for-all perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, the artist, says the masterpiece is completed. The story is completed. And Jesus, the merchant, says, you know what? You were in debt, but I have paid the debt for you myself. Beautiful, beautiful word. It is finished. So I hope you can see it is a word of triumph, of victory that you and I can celebrate as well. It reminds me of John chapter 15, when Jesus is making that final speech to the disciples, and he keeps talking to them about loving one another and following him obediently. And he says, I am saying all this to you that your joy may... I wonder if somebody can help me with this. He says, I'm telling you all this that your joy may be... Does anybody know? Complete. Fulfilled or complete. And he completed that joy for them and for you and me on the cross. And so now we have work to complete on his behalf. And because of that, we can celebrate the fact that it is finished, that there was a victory on the cross, and we can celebrate that in song right now. Sing this old Charles Wesley hymn. It's it's set to a different tune that's in the hymnal, one that you will know, Jesus Shall Reign tune. These are beautiful words that echo what we have just heard. Tis finished, the Messiah dies. So by his words, it is finished. We have a victory to celebrate. 
But then his most final word from the cross. Because of that, we receive a prayer to voice. I said just a moment ago, in order to make our joy complete, he fulfilled his task on the cross. But now we have work to complete on his behalf. So how do we do that? How do we begin? How do we complete this mission that Christ has given to you and to me? We can recall the image of Jesus again at the triumphant entry as he rode humbly on a donkey. It was an act of submission. That's what you and I are called to do. That's our starting point is to lay ourselves down in humble obedience and yieldedness to the living God. Somebody tell me if they can help me finish this. Now I lay me down to sleep. Can anybody help me with this? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. What if I die before I wake? I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's a lullaby prayer, they call it, that some of us learned that we would sometimes pray in the evening. We would sometimes do that kind of as a closure to the day. Now, now let me go away from that for just a moment and mention that John notes that after Jesus cried, it is finished. It says in the Gospel of John, he gave up his spirit. But you go to Luke, and Luke captures the statement that Jesus made, which was what? Into your hands... I commit my spirit. Now, once again, was Jesus just saying the first thing that came to his mind? (laughs) I would argue strongly, no. He is actually quoting scripture, just as he did earlier with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1. He is quoting another psalm here. Psalm 31, 5. You can look it up. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, what's interesting about this was this was the lullaby prayer of a child in Jesus' day. Ancient Hebrew children would pray this just before they went to sleep. Their parents would teach it to them. Their mother, their father would teach this prayer to them, similar to our now I lay me down to sleep. I mean, that becomes so threaded into the consciousness of some of us. Well, this very prayer was threaded into the consciousness of so many Jewish children, and they would pray this prayer just before they went to sleep. It is likely that Joseph and Mary taught Jesus this prayer along with his brothers and sisters, and they would pray it just before they went to sleep in the evening. What's interesting about it, again, is is that this prayer often lasted through adulthood, and then adult Hebrew women and, and men would pray this at the end of the day. And now, just before Jesus dies, he prays this prayer one more time on earth to his heavenly Father. This has been the closing prayer, the actual final earthly words of a lot of people, some of them prominent people. Christopher Columbus, you've heard of. The final words he uttered when he was on earth before he breathed his last were these very words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Martin Luther, the great reformer, final words he shared before he died, into your hands I commit my spirit. Sir Thomas More, the great English martyr, just before he was put to death, And died, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a prayer of absolute trust in God. Think about those words. Into your hands, O God, I commit all of me. That's what it's saying. I like Stewart's translation. I have have entrusted all of this to you. That's a great translation of that. It's, it's, It's a word of trust, a prayer of faithfulness. And that needs to be our prayer today. But I'll never forget going to a hospital room to visit a deacon in my church in Indiana who was about to go through cancer surgery the next morning. And I remember, I said, Dale, would you like for us to pray together? He said, I would like that very much. And I I began my prayer, and then Dale 
closed it with a prayer of his own. And during that prayer, and it wasn't at the very end of his prayer, it was kind of in the middle, he said, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. I pray that you be with me, that I make it through this, but whatever happens, I know that you're with me no matter what. And that struck me as I left that hospital room, and as I drove back to the church, I thought, I've never really thought about it that way. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Should that not be a prayer that we pray not just at the end of the day, but why not at the very beginning of the day? Having a sense of yieldedness and submissiveness to God from the beginning of the day. Into your hands, O God, I commit my spirit. I commit all of myself. I entrust myself to you even now at the beginning of the day. And why just at the beginning of the day when we face some kind of stressful moment during the day or we face some kind of ongoing challenge or crisis in our lives? Should that not be the prayer of submissive, not just obedience, but yieldedness, surrender to God? I would encourage you to memorize that prayer. You can find it again in the book of Luke. It was Jesus' final words. Or just go to where Jesus, Jesus himself was quoting it from. Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Should that not be our own prayer of surrender, of yieldedness, each and every day? Not just at the very end of our lives when we're about to breathe our last, but the very beginning of our lives each and every morning and throughout the day. Could you begin doing that this day and in the days to come as we journey through, first of all, the tragedy of Holy Week with Good Friday and the quiet Saturday? Because we all go through our own Good Fridays, don't we? Could you be able to pray into your hands, O God, in full submission and yieldedness and surrender, I commit my spirit? That should be our prayer each and every day, really each and every hour. And a wonderful hymn that leads us in that direction is wherever he leads, I'll go. And we will sing that collectively right now. Won't you stand again as we sing?
a final word that needs saying. Again, with these final words, we are given a victory to celebrate because it is finished. We're given a prayer to voice each and every day, each and every hour ourselves. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And by his death, he gives us a relationship to reconcile, namely ours with him. Don't celebrate too soon. We can talk about victory, and we can talk about this wonderful prayer of yieldedness to voice, but we still have to journey through Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and the silence of Saturday. Before there is victory, there is pain, and tragedy, and denial, and betrayal, and suffering, and humiliation, and death. He did have to die. So let us keep that in mind as we prepare ourselves for this blessed Holy Week. But do keep in mind that after he spoke these final words, Scripture says that he breathed his last and died. And then there's that curious verse immediately following. I like it especially in the Gospel of Mark because he presents it so matter-of-factly and so starkly. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? Does it mean that when Jesus breathed his last and physically in an earthly fashion died, that literally the curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom? Maybe, maybe not. It really doesn't matter. Is that literal? Is it figurative? It doesn't matter. What is God telling us through that? What is God telling us through this fact? Now, some of you know the historical background of this. Back when the ancient Jews had the tabernacle that they would set up, it was a tent. Sometimes they called it the tent of meeting. And they would worship there and offer sacrifices there. There was one chamber known as the holy place, and only the priests could enter into the holy place. But then it was separated by a curtain, and there was a, an, a chamber even behind that known as the, does anybody know, the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into that room, which again was separated by a curtain, could only go into that room one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And they could only go in that one time, and he would take the blood from a goat and from a bull that they had sacrificed, and he would sprinkle on the throne of God the mercy seat, atop the Ark of the Covenant, and he would do that as an act of sacrifice and atonement on behalf of all the people. It was an act of atonement on behalf of all the people involving blood. So what is God telling us in these Gospels where it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? Two things. First of all, by his death, Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies one more time. That is, all that was needed was one more time, and he presented himself and his own blood as the sacrifice. No more sacrifices needed. Read the book of Hebrews. He was the once-for-all sacrifice. It was a once-for-all event. He himself entered the Holy of Holies and became the great sacrifice of all time. And secondly, because, and we sang about it a minute ago, with the renting of the curtain, we now have direct access to God himself. This God who in the Old Testament times, when the paintings in the gallery, in a sense, the lights were turned off. Jesus turned on the lights, and you could see things more clearly at that point. And not just that, you had direct access to this holy, mysterious God that people were always trying to understand and know personally, but really could not in the fullest sense of the word because of their own waywardness, because of the darkness in their own hearts and in their own lives, because of their sin and separation from him. But with the renting of the curtain, 
flinging open for us to have full relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have direct access to God, the greatest of gifts. So my simple invitation for you this morning is, have you taken advantage of that direct access to God whereupon you can have a personal relationship with him through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ? You're invited to publicly make that statement now that you desire to be a part of this life that we call church, where we celebrate what it means to know God personally because of that great sacrifice that Jesus made. Have you made that commitment in your own life yet? Or you may feel led to to move your membership to this church, or you desire to be baptized as that wonderful symbolic act of dying to self, rising new and new life to Christ. We invite you to do that now. I'll be at the front to greet you if you'll feel led to do that. As we enter into this final song, which I don't think we've sung in a long time, but one of the great ones when it comes down to presenting ourselves and all that we are and all of our blemishness and all of our inner darkness and all of our sin and woundedness, we come to God just as we are and invite him into our lives. Let's stand together and sing. you would be